It's good to be here tonight. As I look around, I'm thinking your pastor has you very well trained. You're, you're sitting forward. For a while, we were having this kind of arrangement in my church, and I had to have the sound guy put an extra extension on the cord because I would just take and move back to wherever they're at, and, and eventually they just decide might as well sit close and not make me move the podium. But, but you're doing pretty well here. I do appreciate the opportunity to be here tonight. I, as Jacob mentioned, I've become good friends with your pastor. We meet, we tried to meet once a month, but I don't think we quite get that during the school year. He drops the kids off. I used to drop my son off. Now he just drives himself, and I sleep in a little later. But we, we meet for breakfast and, and try to encourage each other. And it's been a real joy to become friends with him over the past, what, year or so we've been doing this now. So I do appreciate it, and it's a good opportunity to be with you tonight. Just a week ago, about this time, maybe a half hour or so, I was arriving back in Michigan from, uh, with 15 other people from a trip to Poland. And your missionary there, Bob and Tina McKinney, send greetings to you. They, they asked if I knew your pastor. And I said, oh, yeah, we know. In fact, I'll be at that church next week. And, and Brother McKinney said, please greet them for us. We had a team of 15 people, plus myself made 16 over there for two weeks. We were able to spend two weeks in church there with their small church that he's got started in the town of Boknia and encourage that small congregation. I hope that was our goal. We did some music for them because they don't have a lot of music abilities in their small group. And then in between those two weeks, we had a week of teen camp at a church, or at not a church, at a place about five hours away. They gathered up about 30 teens from a number of missionary churches and we were in an a Anabaptist castle that was built in the 1600s. That was pretty cool. So it was a kind of neat place to have camp. And we were able to be there for the week with the McKinney's and, and enjoyed that very much. So they did send greetings to us, to you. I do want to encourage you to be in prayer for them. I'm sure you pray for all of your missionaries. I saw firsthand what a dark difficult area they're living in there in Poland as far as giving the gospel. It's a place where uh, just a short distance away from them is where Pope John Paul came from. They're in an area where 95% or thereabouts, they estimate, are practicing Roman Catholics. You know, not just Roman Catholic by name, they attend on a very regular basis. Uh, we, uh, As you tour around, you, you go to the church in Krakow, the, the main, what would be our equivalent of of our national cathedral, you know, their main church of the country, and they open up the altar, and who's in the center of the altar picture? Mary. Christ is pushed off to the side. Very heavy Mary worship everywhere in that area. of, And the, the environment they're working within, if they start meeting families and talking to the families, and the families start coming to the church there, it's not too long before the, the priest knocks on their doors and says, knock it off if you don't want to get in trouble with the, the church. And so they've got a real uphill battle, but this past, um, this past couple weeks, if they were able to have these camps for the first time in Bob's five years that he's been there, he was able to get some families to allow their kids to go to camp. Uh, poor, low-income families that had an opportunity here for their kids to go to camp and basically didn't care what the priest said. So Bob's hoping this gives them an inroad into these families. So be praying for them. I, I did want to pass along his greetings to you and also give you a little encouragement about the ministry they're doing. They're, they're very faithful. That's, that was, came through very clearly. Well, tonight we're going to be looking at 
the book of Haggai. We're going to look at the first prophecy in this little book of Haggai. We'll be looking at the first 12 verses of the first chapter. So I invite you to turn there at this time. If you're unfamiliar with this section of your Bible, find Matthew. Go back a few pages towards front. You'll find it. It's the, the third book from the end, but these are all very tiny books, so it's only four or five pages, and you'll find it. Tonight, since we're looking at one of the minor prophets, I'll, I'll give a little more background than I might normally give into a section of Scripture. Uh, I don't know about you, because I don't know you. I know in my church, we're not as familiar with these books as, as we would be with many other books. So uh, I'm going to make the assumption, or not make an assumption that you're familiar either, and we'll spend a little bit more time with background. Assuming you found the book now, let's look at the first verse here that we have Starting out chapter 1, we have written, In the second year of Darius, the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, This is a unique little book. There's a couple of very unique items about this that that are interesting to look at. The, the first unique item is that everything we know about the prophet that wrote this book is contained in this verse. We know very, very little about him. He's simply called the prophet. Haggai is mentioned in other books of the Bible, such as in Ezra, but no more information is ever given about him. He just pops on the scene, Haggai the prophet. We, we know nothing else about him. We don't know his family history. We don't know his background. We simply know that he appears. He appears on the scene here as God's messenger for a very short four months. The, the entire book here covers just a four-month span, and then Haggai disappears again. So, very unique that this prophet has such a powerful, impacting ministry in such a short time. The second thing that's very unique about this book is that this utterance here that we have of Haggai that we'll be looking at tonight, this first utterance that covers the first 12 verses, this prophecy can be dated with extreme precision. With the information that we have here in this verse, we know that Haggai spoke the verses we're going to look at on August 29th, 520 B.C. That's pretty precise, isn't it? If you think about it, we can't even date... The, the birth of our Lord with that level of precision. But here we can come down to the exact day that Haggai spoke these words. If you think about it, that's pretty incredible for something that far back. And that makes this book very unique. We've got a little-known prophet for four, four short months in a time frame that we can very carefully pin down. Why am I going into all that? Because... The more we understand about what's going on, the more we'll be able to understand what Haggai is addressing here. So to help us understand the context of this book, I'm going to ask you briefly to turn to the book of Ezra. Keep, keep your finger in Haggai. We'll be, we will be going back there. But I want to tie in what's happening in the world that Haggai is addressing, specifically what's happening to the nation of Israel in the time frame that he comes on the scene. So we're going to look to the book of Ezra. We'll look in the first four verses of chapter 1. In Ezra chapter 1, we have written, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. 
So they sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judea, or in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with gold and, or with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Judah has been captured here. When Judah was captured by the Babylonians, the king exported a number of people from the nation. They, they took the population, sent Israel into exile. I expect you know that. It was the standard Babylonian policy. When, when they came in, they conquered a the nation. They'd take the people, ship them out to another area. Their, their view of things were that if someone's in a foreign country, they're not going to fight for their freedom because this isn't their homeland. So that was the Babylonian policy. They took the people, deported them. But then along comes Cyrus when the Medes and Persians conquered Babylon. Cyrus was known as an enlightened ruler. He had a different philosophy. Cyrus's view was, we'll make the, I want to have a contented populace. We'll keep them happy by letting people go to their homelands, and we'll even let them worship whatever their gods are. That way they can worship their gods, they'll be happy, they'll be content, there won't be an uprising. So when he came along in 539 B.C., that policy was brought into effect. And what we see going on here in the first four verses of Ezra is the outworking of that policy where he tells the nation of Israel, he issues this decree in 539 to allow the Jewish exiles to return from the various places they've been dispersed, now in the Medo-Persian kingdom, they can return to their homeland, and he even tells them that they can rebuild the temple. He even supports it, state-sponsored. That was his philosophy of how do you keep a, a contended populace in this vast empire that he was ruling. But the problem was when the exiles came back to Jerusalem, they started rebuilding the temple. Very, very quickly they encountered challenges. Have you ever done a project yet where you don't encounter challenges? Well, they encountered some real challenges. Flip over just a few pages to Ezra chapter 4. The first four verses of Ezra chapter 4 when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' households and said to them, Let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God, and we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Ezarhardon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of fathers' households of Israel said to them, you have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God. But we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building. The resistance we see in these four verses here, they, they come from a group of people that later on you know as the Samaritans. They're, they're the group of people that when the Babylonians took the Israelites out of the land of Judah. The Babylonians brought other people into that land. Those people mixed with a few 
Israelites that were left there, and pretty soon you have what became the Samaritans. They're a mixture of Jews and non-Jews that that had intermarried and come together during the, the time when Israel was in exile. The problem was, with this mixture of races, they also had a mixture of religions. They they basically added the God of Israel onto their own gods, and they came up with this mixed way of worshiping. Yeah, they, they acknowledged the God of Israel, but it wasn't a true worship. It was syncretism. They, they combined all of that. And that's why the reason you see in these four verses, the heads of Israel's when this group, this delegation of Samaritans come up and say, let us help build the temple, the heads of the households rightly say, no, we have nothing in common with us. You are not worshiping the God that we worship. You're not worshiping the true God. You are worshiping something else, a God of your own creation. You have nothing in common with us. So they rebuffed them. But that rejection wasn't taken lightly. They, they did not like being told no, that you cannot help us. So what happened is they used various legal means. They used various intimidation tactics. They used various approaches to stymie the work that was begun on rebuilding the temple. And they were successful. Through their efforts, they halted the work on rebuilding the temple until we find in verse 24 of chapter 4 here of Ezra, Then the work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. When we put this all together, what we learn is the work on the temple ceased for 15 years. 15 years until we come to the events, if you flip back to Haggai, that brings us to August 29, 520 B.C., So as we turn back tonight to Haggai, I want you to begin asking yourselves some questions. How am I like the Jews that Haggai addresses? Furthermore, how is the the situation that you find yourself here in Ambassador Baptist Church, how is that situation similar to the situation that the Jews found themselves in? How are the things in Detroit Metro similar to the environment that these people find themselves within? What opposition do we face? What opposition might we face in the future? How must we respond to that opposition? Tonight, as we step through our passage here in Haggai, I want us to look at three simple elements. As Haggai lays it out, we'll look at these three simple elements. First of all, what was the problem? What was the solution? And then what was the response? Let's begin the task of looking at the problem. And as we do that, let's ask ourselves, what happened to these Jews? They they started out a project. They were sent by the king of the, the greatest empire of the world at that time, given official permission to go and build a temple to their God. They were given permission. They they went, they, they returned from exile. So they started a project with much zeal. What happened to them? You you can almost think, as they were packing up their stuff, getting ready for that long journey to go back to Israel, what kind of thoughts were going through their mind? What kind of excitement as they took on this project? You know, we're going back to rebuild the temple of God. Could it be that God is going to come back in His glory and dwell in the temple once again like He did in days of old? Could God once again 
as his temples put, make Israel a great nation, are we going to be able to be the generation to see all this? You know, you don't pack your stuff up and journey hundreds of miles through this difficult land without having great visions of what you're going to accomplish. So, so this, these people, they began with great visions. They wanted to build a temple to the God of Israel. They wanted to see God reign. Could it be that God would even bring in the Messiah and usher in the kingdom that's been promised? Maybe God would do these things. Maybe. Maybe it could happen. They had to have started with great dreams. But then what happened? Opposition came along. The great dream ran into great obstacles. And it was a challenge. The people met hostility. So what did they do when they ran into this hostility? If we think about it, they did what I believe so many of us do so many times. I'm afraid they used the same approach to meet the challenges that we use. Appeasement through procrastination. They didn't run away. They just didn't fight. They didn't go backwards. They just didn't move forwards. They found that as long as they procrastinated just a little bit longer, the opposition wasn't as great. The hurdles weren't so strong. They didn't have to deal with the same kind of opposition, and life became much easier. I expect when they first ceased building the temple, they never, ever imagined that it would sit there for 15 years. Now, we'll just give a couple months rest, let these Samaritans go away again, and then we'll get back to it. They didn't plan on setting aside the project that they came home for. But 15 years passed. 15 years. After that much time, these Jews are just like you and I. Life begins to have a pattern. After 15 years, the pattern is deeply ingrained tradition. After all, what's wrong with having a stable life? What's wrong with having security? Look with me as we turn back to Haggai and consider verses 2 through 6. Let's see what God says the problem is. God says that they have self-centered rather than God-centered priorities. Beginning at verse 2 of Haggai chapter 1. Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. God starts here in verse 2 by quoting the common expression of these people. The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. This isn't the time yet for us to attempt this project. Now's not the time. Notice how God refers to them in verse 2. He says, this people says. 
God doesn't refer to them as my people. This is the chosen nation of Israel. These are the, the Jews that returned from exile according to His promise. And He's referring to them as this people says, now is not the time. That tells us that God is not happy God at this point. He is not happy with these people. He's displeased. Why? Why is God displeased? Because they know what they're supposed to do and they're not doing it. They claim now is not the right time. They know God expects them to build the temple, but it's difficult. It's not convenient. They decide it wasn't the best use of their time. It wasn't the best use of their abilities. You know, we have other things to occupy our time. We have more important things to do in our life at this point in time. At least that's what they said. But the real truth is found here in verse 4. You see, the problem is our efforts reflect our priorities. That the people recognize their duty, but they've been putting off for 15 years. The reason the time wasn't now to rebuild the temple is they were busy doing other things. They were busy building their own homes. Returning from exile, they found the city of Jerusalem was demolished. It was in ruins. They had to build houses to live in. But I'm sure it wasn't very long before they discovered if they focused on building their houses, there wasn't the same kind of opposition from Samaritans as when they built the, the temple. The Samaritans didn't want to help them build their house. That was their problem. So they didn't have to fight with the Samaritans. They didn't have all this trouble. And as all of us who own homes know, the list of things you need to do on your house never ends. There's always one more project or five more projects to do. So over time, they just kept working on their houses. So rather than rebuilding the temple, they improved their homes. That seemed to make sense. I mean, after all, don't they deserve a little bit of comfort? After all, they sacrificed everything, leaving wherever they had settled in for the many years of exile. They'd left that behind. Didn't they deserve a little bit of comfort to come back? Was it wrong to rebuild their houses? If God really wanted them to build the temple, wouldn't He give them a definitive sign that now is the time by removing all the obstacles, taking the Samaritans away? I'm sure their rationalizations went on and on about why now is not the right time. But God wasn't fooled. God knew that camouflaged under this abundance of excuses was a heart that was cold toward him. That was the real issue. Why is it so easy for me to imagine their rationalizations? Well, because I don't know about you, but I know I am an expert at rationalizing. I know time and again how good I am at, at understanding exactly what God would have me do, but then figuring out all the reasons why now is not the right time for me to do it. I fall into the exact same trap as they do. How many times do you do the same? How many times do you know what God would have you to do, but you simply don't do it? How many excuses can you come up with for not being in church on a Sunday evening? How many reasons do you give for putting less into the offering plate than what first came into your mind when that love offering was taken up? How do you justify working long hours that keep you away from your family or your ministry responsibilities? Folks, God is not fooled. God knows 
what's really in our heart. He knows that under all of our excuses can lie a heart that is cold toward Him. Before the, the exile, the, the common battle cry that all the prophets uttered landed in one word, repent. Before they were exiled, the prophets were saying, repent. Turn from the sins that you're under right now and maybe God will stay His judgment. Repent. Turn back. But now, we see through the prophet of Haggai a new battle cry. No longer is God saying repent. Now God says, consider your ways. In other words, look at what you're doing. Think about it. What are the moral implications of your actions? Consider your ways. Bring yourself under self-judgment. Analyze what you're doing. Truth is, we all have time for what is most important to us. I do, and so do you. Whatever is our highest priority, but our efforts reflect our priorities. If there isn't time for God, then all that simply says is that God is not most important. It simply means that we have self-centered rather than God-centered priorities. And like the nation of Israel, we need to do the same. We need to consider our ways. Why? Because what we see here is God is able to frustrate self-centered priorities. Look carefully at verse 6. It seems here as if these refugees are having a string of bad luck. Nothing is going according to expectation. You know, they have done everything right to grow bumper crops. I'm a farm boy. I understand about growing crops. There's certain things that you have to do. And they've done all those things, but yet they don't have bumper crops. Drought has taken everything away before harvest. Kind of like what would happen if you had a garden in this year that you didn't water. Nothing's going to grow. They've had difficult economic times. They, they don't have enough to eat. They don't have enough to drink. They're, they're unable to afford adequate clothing. Inflation is so high that it seems like they're putting money in bags with holes where it just falls right on through because when you reach back in, there's nothing left. They're living in the, the condition of folks, there's a lot more month than money in their life. But we have to remember, Haggai here is speaking with divine authority, isn't he? What's implied in verse 6 is made explicit when we come to verse 9. These economic facts are there by divine appointment. The reason there's more month than money is because God is frustrating their self-efforts. And you know what? This is still true. Our economic situation is still under divine control. The pitiful low value of our homes right now is no accident to our divine God. The impact of our economic turn on our 401ks is no surprise to God. The high price of gas. All these economic factors are under divine control. America does not control its financial economy independently from God. And neither do we as individuals. The moment we think we do, we're falling into the same trap as these individuals. We need to consider our ways. We may be reflecting self-centered priorities, and God is able to frustrate all self-centered efforts. In this passage here, the prophet's addressing the nation by addressing individuals. 
When we find out that we consistently have more month than money, we stop and ask ourselves why. Why is it that I'm running out? You know, by standards of most of the world, no matter what our income is in this country, we have a lot. So if we're running out, why? Uh, I don't want you to think, I don't want to get in trouble with your pastor that I'm proposing a, a mechanical health wealth here. Mentality, God doesn't promise that if we do exactly what He says, we're going to be wealthy. But He does. He does control our economic destiny. Now, there's no guarantee in, for the Christian that if we do what He says, we'll be wealthy. We're told to lay up treasure in heaven, not and focus on things above. But what I'm trying to point out is that the moment that we begin to think that we operate independently from God, we'd better look out. Because God is able to frustrate any efforts that we think are independent of Him. I suspect that it's unlikely that any of you would state that you operate independently from God. I know I wouldn't dare state that. In fact, I expect that all of us would fervently protest that statement. We know, you're part of a good Bible teaching church, we all know that God is in control. We'd pound that statement as hard as we can. Yeah, how many times do our actions reveal that our priorities are self-centered? How many times do our actions, our actions, what we do, reveal that we think we're independent of God? How often do we sound like the man portrayed in James 4.13? Tomorrow, I'm going to go and do such and such because it's going to benefit me. And then how often do we come distressed when such and such doesn't work because God changes the plan? You know, it scares me when I see believers pursuing self-centered goals. Heedless of the priorities that they reveal, heedless of the advice that they're given, regardless of all the counsel they receive, I see believers pursuing self-centered goals. And that worries me. That scares me because I know from this passage, God is not a God to be trifled with. God is not a God to be ignored. God may choose to stop their plans dead in their tracks. He may choose to chastise any of us who are pursuing self-centered efforts in such a way that we will have unintended consequences. Yeah, I don't want to see people go through that. We need to consider our ways. We need to give careful thought to what our efforts reveal. We need to consider that God may be frustrating our self-centered efforts. We may be suffering from the same problem that Haggai addressed here centuries ago, where these people are wrapped up in their own self-interest, self-centered rather than God-centered priorities. That may be our problem. If so, what is the solution? Quite simply, the solution Haggai gives here is reestablish God-centered priorities. Reestablish them. But how do we do that? How do we reestablish God-centered priorities? We need to take two basic steps. We need to reflect on what our current priorities are, and then we need to align our priorities with God's priorities. First of all, we need to reflect on our current priorities. God here in verse 7 repeats his injunction. 
Consider your ways. Twice now. Verse 5, verse 7. Consider your ways. Wake up. Look at what you're doing. But now he expands with further instruction. Going on through verse 11. Consider your ways. Go up to the mountains. Bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much. Behold, it comes to little when you bring it home. I blow it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and all the labors of your hands. God says, I called for this. God tells His people, stop and think about what their priorities are. Verse 8 here says what they should be doing. They should be putting their efforts into a necessary task to rebuild the temple. Go get the wood that you need. Go gather it. Go do what is required to complete the temple. But that's not what they have been doing. So God has brought drought. He has caused the entire land to suffer. And in the end, all of their efforts to benefit themselves are wasted. Why were their actions wrong? Were they wrong to be pursuing the necessary tasks of life? No. We all need to live. We all need to eat. We all need to to have a roof over our heads. So they're not wrong to pursue the necessary tasks of life. They're wrong because their actions indicate that the worship to the Lord was not the number one priority in their life. The Lord was not preeminent. Worship of Him was not important. God was just a secondary consideration. They'd worship Him when they got to it. Worship of God would come after they've completed all the other things that were consuming their lives. All they had to do, God says, to see this is step back and look at how they're spending their time, how they're spending their money, how they're spending their energy. Let me ask you, is God preeminent in your life? Is worship of Him first in your life? Or is he a secondary consideration? Reflect on your priorities. Reflect on how you spent your time this past week and answer the question. When there's a trade-off between doing something for God and doing something fun, what wins? Do you spend more time watching TV than studying God's Word? Do you find time to go all your children or grandchildren's sporting events, but you don't have time to come back on a regular basis Wednesday night? What does your time reveal? Where is God in your priorities? If we want to reestablish God-centered priorities, we first need to reflect on our current priorities. We need to look at how we're spending our time and what that reveals. Then... We simply need to align our priorities with God's. Notice in the verses that we just read, God is clear. He's been the mover behind all of their problems. All of these economic problems have come because He's decreed it to be such. He was able to take all their efforts and blow them away. 
He did this to get their attention. He did this to get them to stop. And listen, now when this prophet comes on the scene and says, consider your ways, God was able to bring economic hardships in their lives. In the end, their self-centered priorities brought loss instead of gain. No matter how much effort they put into taking care of themselves, it amounted to nothing. God makes it clear to the people now through the prophet that they're only going to have true success when they align their priorities with his priorities. And his priority is very clear. The temple, which is the place to worship him because worship of God is their highest priority. But you know, the same is true for us. Do you seem to work and work and work and yet never make any progress? Could it be that God is blowing away your efforts because all your efforts are being driven by self-centered instead of God-centered priorities? God doesn't promise us material wealth, but he does promise us a contented life in the New Testament era. If we center our priorities on him, he promises that peace that passes all understanding. He promises that we will live a life filled with contentment. Do you have that life? We need to line our priorities with God's priorities. The problem comes when we have self-centered priorities instead of God-centered priorities. The solution is to reestablish God-centered priorities. But you know, it cannot stop there. We can't simply realign our priorities with God's priorities. We have to take action. We need to act. We need to execute on God-centered priorities. Look at one final verse with me tonight. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. The leaders and the people responded. They didn't simply realign their priorities mentally. They had to do that, but they didn't stop with that. They followed through with action. And we need to do the same. We need to act. First of all, we need to acknowledge our failures. Even though verse 12 doesn't make it explicit, I cannot imagine that the people didn't take as their first step the action of confessing their failure of the last 15 years. I, I cannot conceive of how they would move forward without recognizing that they failed for 15 years. And every time you recognize you failed before God, the natural response of our heart is to confess that failure. So we need to acknowledge our failure. A change in direction begins with acknowledging that the previous direction was wrong. Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all the people had to admit that they'd been sinful while they were pursuing their selfish goals of more pleasant living conditions rather than focusing on God's goal of his temple. They had to confess that, acknowledge it before God. And we need to begin in the same place. We need to look at where we have failed by living for self instead of God and acknowledge that failure to God. We need to acknowledge where we have taken God off the throne of our lives and admit that failure to him. 
We must confess our failures so that we can begin to move in a new direction. And then secondly, we need to act once we have our priorities right. Verse 12 says that the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. They got their priorities right, but they didn't just leave it a mental decision. They acted. They finally had their priorities right, and immediately they moved into action. They began rebuilding the temple, repairing it. They took all the necessary steps to do the things that they agreed were the right things to do. They took all the steps needed to move forward showing God that He was preeminent in their life. But the final phrase of the verse shows the real change. They showed reverence for the Lord. They made God preeminent. They showed reverence to the Lord. No longer was God secondary. No longer did He come after they completed all of their personal concerns. God was given the supreme place in their life. He was given reverence. Historically, if we track things from this point on, the reconstruction of the temple moves forward. And you know what? The people again encountered opposition. The Samaritans again rose up. Hostility came. But this time, the people reverenced the Lord. Their highest priority was that God would be honored with their lives. So what did they do? They met the adversity wisely. They kept on working, and God removes all the obstacles. So that when we come to Ezra chapter 6, if we turn back there, that traces it. Ezra chapter 6, 15 records that the temple was completed and dedicated in the sixth year of King Darius. If you look back here in verse 1, it's in the eighth month of the second year, Haggai comes on scene, and now in the sixth year, the temple is completed. Four years later, in spite of opposition coming back. Are you willing to act for God? Whatever God is asking of you to do, will you do it? Are you willing to live your life so that God is preeminent? So that He has first place? Do you reverence Him enough to do whatever He requires, no matter what opposition comes? Will you stand against the opposition and not let that deter you, but rather trust God to deal with it? In the end, God wiped away the opposition. He moved through a number of channels so that the temple would get built, but God only moved after they reverenced Him. You know, when we honor God, it may be difficult. When we act on God's priorities, it may be a challenge. It may require sacrifice. I told you that was with McKinney's in Poland. I want to tell you about one of the young couples in their church. There's this young man and woman who both grew up in the Roman Catholic Church like so many others in that country, the vast, vast, vast majority. But this young man and this young woman became disillusioned with the Catholic Church. They found the Catholic Church did not have any answers. So they basically dropped out. They moved in together and became a young man, young woman, living together with no real hope in life, just trying to get by. One day, 
Bob and Tina McKinney were in the doctor's office. They were taking their daughter, Allie, for some, some um, tests, and they were trying to fill out paperwork. Doctors in Poland apparently are just like doctors here. If you go and see the doctor, you fill out reams of papers. The only problem is the paper's in Polish. Um, Bob says Polish is one of the most difficult languages in the world to learn. In fact, to tell, hear Bob tell the story, he says, you know we're in a lot of trouble when Tina's turning to me and asking, what do you think this means? Because her Polish is a lot better than his. And that's the situation they found. Polish as language is difficult. Now you add in medical terminology on top of it, and they were in basically an impossible situation. They had no clue how to fill out these papers. All of a sudden, they hear a voice behind them asking in very clear English, could I be of assistance to you? And they turn around and see this young woman. I, I can't help but think of Ruth chapter 2, verse 3, where it says, Ruth happened chance by chance upon Boaz's field, just happened to land in the field of Boaz. This woman just happened to be in the office and asked them, could I help you? Her English was very, very good. And the woman sat down and helped them fill out the papers. They, they were able to complete it. But what I love about this story is the McKinney's did not see as this young woman as an opportunity that God, or as, as a provision from God to meet their need of the moment. The McKinney saw this as an opportunity to tell someone why they were in Poland. So while they were filling out the papers, while they were going through the doctor's appointment, sitting there in the waiting room, the McKinney's told them why they were there. In the course of that normal conversation, they started to tell them, we're missionaries here. That means that, that we're trying to start a church. In fact, we have a, a Bible study that meets and studies what's in the Word of God. Uh, would you like to come? And you know what? This young woman did. And she brought her boyfriend's significant other. And they came, both of them came to the study. And over time, God used his word to draw them to himself. So now we, you have a young couple that's no longer living together. They're married. They're part of a New Testament church. They have two young children. They're growing up as first generation in a Christian home all because the McKinney's were there and took that opportunity. And they have a strong desire to serve God. But you know what? It's difficult. As a result of them coming to Christ, this young couple is basically ostracized from their family. This young couple have stood up in other people's weddings as close friends. You know how it is, just like here. If your closest friends stand up as your bridesmaids or groomsmen, those same people would not come to their wedding when Bob married them because they were being married outside the Catholic Church. Following God can be difficult. Our entire team was impressed by their dedication. On last night, three of our team members were able to spend time in their house and they learned about all these things, these challenges that this young couple is facing because of their stand for Christ. Folks, we need to stand for God-centered priorities no matter what the cost, no matter what the opposition may bring. We can start by acknowledging our past failures. 
But once we understand what God would have us do, we need to act and not let the opposition deter us. Do you have the same problem in your life that Haggai addressed in the lives of the people here of Israel? Do you have self-centered rather than God-centered priorities? You know, your actions reflect your priorities. You may think that no one else really knows what's going on. You may think that no one else understands that you're living for yourself. And you may be right. But God is not fooled. God knows your priorities. And God is able to frustrate all self-centered efforts. Consider your ways. Are you ready to reestablish God-centered priorities in your life? Well, then first of all, you need to reflect on your current priorities. What do they reveal? In what areas are they self-centered? When you've determined what those areas are, then you need to adjust. You need to align your priorities with God's priorities. And then, are you ready to act? Are you going to move forward regardless of the opposition, regardless of the difficulties? Are you ready to act? You need to start by acknowledging where you failed to act in the past. And then you need to just do it. Act on God-centered priorities. Show your reverence for God through the actions you take. We need to remember, God is sufficient to overcome all obstacles. But He chooses to overcome obstacles by working through people who have Him first in their life. It's when we put Him first and when we start acting that God begins to move. What great things could happen this year in your life through God-centered priorities? What great things could happen in this church through God-centered priorities? Do you believe that God is big enough to do things that are so momentous that you're not even able to envision them at this moment? That's the size God we have. But God works through people who have Him first in their life. We need to have God-centered priorities in our lives. That can't just be a statement we make. That has to be the reality that we live. We need to have God-centered priorities. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that You would help all of us to apply the truth of this passage to our lives. Father, we are no different than the nation of Israel in so many ways. We allow our personal concerns and the events of our world to distract us and to cause us to not live in a way that puts you first. Ultimately, Father, we know that that just reveals the sinfulness of our heart, that we are living for ourselves rather than living for you. Father, I pray that you would help all of us to examine ourselves, to change, and may we attempt great things for your glory, knowing that with your power, anything that you would have accomplished can be done. Father, may you help all of us to align our priorities with your priorities, and may we act in a way that reverences you first in our life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.